This is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. Where's your innovation, huh? Sequels suck. Do the same thing. Everyone's happy. It's all about money, boys! Here we go again. Everything's perfectly all right now. We're fine. We're all fine here now. Thank you. How are you? What's up, everybody, and welcome back to Franchise Fatigue. This is a show where we talk about film series one movie at a time. I'm your host, Gabe Green, and with me is my co-pilot, James Hamrick. I realize most of his contributions are just, uh, you know, inarticulate grunts and roars, but uh, he's fun to have around. How you doing? I'm doing pretty good. I'm going to try to keep this from being a boring conversation. And yeah, that description is probably pretty true, even outside of just uh, just this particular episode. Yeah, anytime it gets slow, just feel free to rip someone's arms off or something. It'll, it'll spice it up. All right, uh, so that intro quote pretty much sums up how I've been feeling this entire week, trying to figure out what the heck I'm going to say about Star Wars. Because, you know, we like to bring the full picture and give you a, you know, a, per- a perspective of, you know, the behind the scenes, the film itself, and the legacy. And there is basically all the information in the world available that you could ever want to know <laughs> on these films. So just going to, you know, full disclosure right now, there's no possible way we can cover, you know, every charming anecdote from the productions or every whatever Kurosawa influence or or even begin to touch this film's legacy. We're, just, we, we're going to try to you know, go through some of the highlights, and then obviously in the discussion of the film, we'll, we'll touch on the stuff that, uh, that uh, you know, affects us. But yeah, if we don't, if we don't cover your favorite little uh, tidbit of information, I'm sorry, there's no, no human could do all this. But we will try. Oh, and in case you didn't know, we are discussing A New Hope, or Star Wars. <laughs> See, there's a whole story just to that name. This is what we're dealing with. But before we get into that, I'd like to ask you guys, if you enjoy the show, to please take a moment to go and rate and review us on iTunes and like us on Facebook. That would help more people find us, and uh, we'd be very appreciative. So, uh, for dealing with Star Wars, we will be doing something a little different than how we normally cover franchises. Normally, we just go release order through the films, but... The, the, the series is so ridiculous. You have the original trilogy, a prequel trilogy, you know, a prequel TV show that t- takes place between in the middle, no, no, that takes place in the middle of the prequel series, another TV show that takes place in the middle of the prequel series, a TV show that takes place between the prequels and the originals, uh, a film that the TV series is a prequel to that takes place with the original series. It is essentially a prequel a itself to the original series. Yeah. A sequel series to the original series, and then there's now another prequel to the original series coming out, and who knows what's going to happen after that. So there's really, we're not going to even try to go through this all entirely on release order because they're all mixed together. So we will be, uh, first we're going to go through the original trilogy, and we're going to try to keep our discussion limited as much as possible to that, because I think I think that that one's fairly easy to you know put in as time capsule and talk about them film by film, and only discuss the information revealed within each one. However, after that, once we get to the prequel series, I think we're just going to go all out and just you know have a field day with the entire intertextuality of the entire series. And after we'll do the first three, then we're going to go to um to the prequels, do the, do the first two prequels, 
then do a Gendy Tartakovsky's uh, 2D Clone Wars series. Then the, the, the 3D animated Clone Wars series. There are five seasons of that. We'll be doing an episode per season. Then we'll do Revenge of the Sith. Move on to uh, the four seasons of Rebels. Do an episode per season. Then Rogue One. By that time, Solo... We might do a mini-sode on Solo. I don't even know. We might do a mini-sode. This is months away from now. We might do a mini-sode on Solo. And then we'll jump forward to the uh, new trilogy, uh, or the new the two films of the new trilogy, and we'll review them. So we're going to do the original trilogy, then pretty much um, start at the beginning and go chronologically through the rest of that. Just you know, try and explore the entire story of the series. But for now, we're going to try and focus just on the um, on the original trilogy in isolation. I hope that made some kind of sense. I mean, I'm still trying to wrap my head around it. All right, fair enough. All right, James, are you ready to uh, dive into this journey that's going to last us, I think, a good three, four months? Or maybe if, we, if we're on time? Uh, as ready as I could probably get. All right, so let's uh, start talking about A New Hope. James, why don't you tell us a little bit about a little bit <laughs> about how this film came to be? Yeah, I was about to say, where to even begin, man? Um there are books and documentary, multiple documentaries covering the story of this. So this is an absurdly summarized version of uh, everything that went into it. And chances are all the listeners know more than we'll even talk about here. Probably true, but just so that we can have said that we had attempted to cover our bases. This is, this is my attempt at covering the original concept. Um, Lucas has spoken about it a lot over the years. Um, sometimes he tends to uh, kind of contradict his own story, uh, but there's no. I know. Although I mean, after everything he's been a part of, I don't even um, you know fault him. It's probably pretty difficult to wrap your mind around everything you've been a part of over the years. Um, it seems though, I think there are some consistent things you can look to and consider as fact. Uh, it seems that the idea first started to materialize in Lucas's head following the release of his feature film THX 1138, uh, though at the time the idea was actually to adapt Flash Gordon into a feature film. Uh, he had found the tone of the films of the 70s a bit too bleak uh, and wanted to give children a similar experience he had growing up with things like Flash Gordon and Buck Rogers and Robin Hood, all the, you know, the pirate adventure movies. Um, he just felt that, you know, putting his mind in the, in the mind of a kid today, like there's nothing really like that at the time. And so that was really his goal. Um, the conceptual ideas he was having for this series was kind of happening concurrently with the production and release of American Graffiti. Uh, so at that time it was pretty much just a very, very vague idea. Uh, it wasn't until 1973, following uh, his rejection to the rights of Flash Gordon, that he actually, he and I believe Brian De Palma actually went with him to try to uh, negotiate to get the Flash Gordon rights. Um, and so it was after his rejection of the rights that he sat down and decided, well, I'm going to write my own space opera in the, you know, kind of in the vein of Flash Gordon. It was originally titled Journal of the Wills. Uh, which I think is a cool thing to know because that kind of comes uh, back in like later later additions to canon in the series. Um, the first story actually involved a character named C.J. Thorpe being trained as a Jedi Bendu by the legendary warrior Mace Windu. Um, the Bendu also comes back later on. It's true, yeah. It's true, uh, the, uh, 
There's a character called the Bendu in Rebels. It's basically like every name he thought of, he used at some point later on throughout the many, many iterations of uh, of these stories we see. It was the best that, you know, like almost every single name here is going to end up being reused, uh, obviously, as is the case with Windu. Uh, but even beyond that, as well as concept art, uh, early designs for R2-D2 and Chewbacca, who was based on Lucas's dog, Indiana, uh, would later serve as the basic dev- uh, design for characters Chopper and Zeb from the Rebels series. I, I knew about the Chopper, like the visual references to ch- for Chopper. Uh, never heard of the thing with Zeb before. Yeah, I was looking through some of um, uh, Ralph McQuarrie's initial concept art, and there he is just standing there. I'm like, I know that character, that's Zeb. Uh, so there's there's a lot of cool stuff like that. I mean, my goodness, there there are so many things I would recommend just looking into. Empire of Dreams is a fantastic um, uh, documentary kind of covering the creation. Uh, eventually, as he was trying to come up with these ideas, Lucas grew frustrated with his own work. He kind of started to find it too difficult and incomprehensible for just a viewer to understand. And he decided on pretty much completely overhauling and retitling it. So by April 1973, Lucas had a 13-page treatment just called The Star Wars, which was largely inspired by Akira Kurosawa's classic The Hidden Fortress. Uh, and this this shift kind of marks where he went from, you know, these bigger concepts, or from his attempt at forcing these bigger concepts into a very serialized Buck Rogers kind of um, story to a much more, you know longer kind of adventure hero's journey style story um so he would spend his summer from 1973 to 1974 writing and rewriting different outlines for the story uh and that's a process he described as quote a good idea in search of a story um which kind of seems to be his mo he just seems like a fantastic idea guy and it's trying to find the story that uh that's the difficult part but but by may of 1974 the ideas that are familiar to us started to find their way into his rough draft screenplay. Uh, things like the Sith and the Death Star and the name Anakin. Uh, this is where they started to appear in his 74 draft. Uh, however, at this time, it was Anakin Starkiller, who was at first a general, then an adolescent boy, then a supporting member in a family of dwarves. Um, I'm not making this up. Uh, Han Solo was even a green-skinned monster with gills, as he described. And so... Yeah, that's that's pretty much um, where the initial concept came up. Uh, you'll probably take us through his process once he kind of got the more basic story that we're familiar with down. So th- th- that covered about the first two or three drafts. Uh, the third draft was called The Star Wars, The Adventures of Luke Starkiller. Th- this one uh, re- removed the father, which was originally going to be uh, of a, kind of a direct father-son mentor um story and instead replaced it with uh, the character of Ben Kenobi as the mentor instead. Several more drafts were written. Uh, one titled The Adventures of Luke Starkiller as taken from the Journal of the Wills Saga 1. The Star Wars. <laughs> very, yeah. yeah, A very uh, uh, easy title. Uh, during this time he worked on a, on the script with uh, Gloria Katz and Willard Hike, um, both who would later collaborate with him on uh, The Temple of Doom and Howard the Duck. Hmm. Uh, during this time, he was working with concept artist Ralph McQuarrie um, to make paintings and art that he could use uh, to help pitch uh, the film to producers. 
Um, multiple studios, including Disney, <laughs> rather ironically, uh, passed on the project before 20th Century Fox picked it up. And if you ever get a chance, look up Ralph McQuarrie's uh, concept art for A New Hope, because it, these aren't just like rough sketches. These are just like full glorious illustrations and like these beautiful angles and cinematic poses they're total works of art on their own and they're really 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 lovely worth hanging up i mean i would love to own some of these and uh i think lucas even considers like the inclusion of the artwork a big reason as to why it was eventually able to get off the ground before i go into uh the casting uh i think there are a couple other just really quick obviously we need to be quick uh Things to mention, uh, one of the things that carried from concept into writing was this constant idea of, you know, distilling what makes humans love adventure stories to, like, their most pure form. Uh, But he was enamored by the work of author Joseph Campbell, as I'm sure, you know, most people listening know, uh, especially his work, The Hero with a Thousand Faces. And Lucas actually approached him personally for advice on the writing, uh, and Campbell would later call Lucas his greatest student. Um... And I also just think it's it's funny to note that, you know, one of the, the things that kind of marked the creation of Star Wars was constant, constant revisions. And that was even going on into the filming of A New Hope. Uh, the script that they started filming with had Ben Kenobi living through the end. Uh, it wasn't until they went into filming before Lucas wrote Ben's death and to break the bad news to Alec Guinness. But as for casting... Uh, Lucas was set to begin casting during the exact same time his good friend Brian De Palma was casting for uh, the adaptation of Stephen King's Carrie. So the two shared a casting room and interviewed a lot of the same people. Uh, And he described the casting process as essentially six to seven months in the exact same room, hearing the exact same dialogue spoken by thousands of people. So uh, I'm sure that was fun. Uh, People who auditioned for Luke was uh, William Catt, Andrew Stevens, and Robbie Benson. Um, I'm not really familiar with those names, um, but obviously, as we all know, the role ended up going to Mark Hamill. Uh, Lucas was looking for like a wholesome sense of charm and sincerity, uh, and he saw that in Mark Hamill, and he thought it was perfect for the journey that Luke was going to go on, and he also wanted the character to feel like he had a certain amount of intelligence and integrity to match, and so uh, I-, I think that makes sense. You know, There's something very endearing about Mark's performance, especially in this first one. Yeah, what what they hear that uh, really impressed him with uh, Hamill was that he, <laughs> Hamill was just like I I cannot comprehend this dialogue, so I'm just gonna say it with all the sincerity I can. Whereas a lot of the other actors were kind of uh, weren't didn't seem to be taking it as sincerely. So that that was one thing that stuck out to, from Hamill to to Lucas. Yeah, and you can actually see these initial tapes. I'm sure a lot of people have, but I mean I get that too. He's he's speaking his lines with conviction. Um, as for Han, I mean, man, all the actors who audition, we have Kurt Russell, Robert England, Al Pacino. I um, could go with Kurt Russell, man. <laughs> he could do it, but man, he's he's the closest of these, but there's there's no way I would trade Ford for anyone. Um, Tom Selleck, which is now the second one that Tom Selleck and uh, Harrison Ford were kind of both up for the same role. Uh, Sylvester Stallone, that would have been weird. Uh, and then Christopher Walken. That would have been if <laughs> we're fine. We're all fine. How are you? I'd I'd watch that version. Um, the story of Ford getting the role. He was actually working as a carpenter at the time. He was only in a very small handful of roles. 
uh, and he was brought in just to help with readings. He had been in a American graffiti beforehand, um, and he was kind of there just to feed, as as he describes, to feed line to the other actors reading. But due to his own personal charisma and chemistry with the other potential cast members, Ford was essentially unknowingly convincing Lewis that he was uh, Lucas that he was the right guy for the part, and so. The stars just kind of aligned, and Lucas thought, you know, there's no reason I should keep auditioning for this role. I think I have it. Um, for Leia, actresses Linda Pearl, uh, Terry Nunn, Cindy Williams, and Jodie Foster all auditioned for Leia. Uh, and of course, that ended up going to Carrie Fisher. And I really understand why, especially hearing what Lucas was looking for. He was he was trying to find somebody who was equal uh, to the Luke character in age, but was like carried herself in a much more mature dignified manner and when you go and you watch like the the compilations of all the different auditions carrie fisher set herself apart from everyone else at least as far as i saw um she seemed just very wise beyond her years in the way she delivered much more mature than you'd expect an 18 year old at the time to be yeah like when she's talking to under vader she doesn't feel like a 19 year old yeah, I, I even, you know, my mind goes to her, like, verbal sparring with Tarkin. It doesn't seem, you know, like she's trying to keep up with this veteran actor. They feel very much on equal ground. For the Obi-Wan character, Lucas knew he needed an actor with a certain amount of gravitas and, and especially a recognizable name just to sell the audience on the character's wisdom and mentor-type role, um, as well as to make up for the fact that he controversially cast three unknowns as the lead. Um, the role ended up fairly quickly going to Alec Guinness, um, who made his mark on Cinema Forever with this role. But before it went to uh, Guinness, he wanted to cash uh, Toshiro Maifun, I'm sorry if I mispronounced that, uh, who is the lead, or one of the leads in um, Akira Kurosawa's The Hidden Fortress, which was uh, is considered one of the uh, great inspirations for this film. But no, he 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 he, did, he turned it down. That's why he went to uh, went to Guinness. Then moving up, we uh, with the character of Tarkin, uh, Hammer Horror alum uh, Peter Cushing ended up getting the co uh, the co villain role, <laughs> and obviously we'll, we'll talk more about him in the you know, when we actually talk about the performances. But I I love Tar- Tarkin's a personal favorite of mine of the series. Um. We have the the Va- or the character of Vader. The physical part went to bodybuilder uh, and also Hammer Horror alum David Prowse, who is in uh, Frankenstein's Monster as well as several other pictures. Um, then, of course, side roles like Chewbacca, R two D two, and C three PO all went to Peter Mayhew, Kenny Baker, and Anthony Daniels, respectively. Uh, honestly, there's every if you even had a speaking role in this movie, you're found in conventions. <laughs> And so I'm sure there's a lot of people who are like shaking their fists saying, you forgot to mention this person. But uh stormtrooper who bumped his head. Exactly. He's a hero. <laughs> yeah. Um, so in 1975, Lucas founded Industrial Light and Magic with uh, John Dystra to produce the groundbreaking special effects that would be needed in the film. So while filming was going on in location, they were shooting all the special effects sequences, which were mostly scale models and matte paintings and just actual photography, but all basically using forced perspective and uh, models to get a lot of the space flight and planets and all that crazy stuff. Um, 
The principal photography began in March of 1976. Lucas hired cinematographer Gilbert Taylor to be the DP of the film. Um, over the course of the production, they clashed a lot. Lucas wanted to go for like a very diffused, soft focus style. I guess I guess to kind of give it like an ethereal, otherworldly look. Uh, but Taylor didn't like this at all and wanted to give go for much uh, you know cleaner, crisp images. Um, eventually, the studio had to step in and they decided with Taylor to shoot it the way he wanted. And I'm very glad they did. I think the the, the kind of stark, cold, uh, and clean compositions that uh, are that they have in this film is like one of the most distinctive visual elements of the movie. It makes it it gives it this real feeling of uh, you know grit and um, the tangibility. It just it feels like we're looking at a real place where if they had gone for a more weird like uh, kind of a soft focus look. It would have basically kind of ruined one of the the, the, the film's biggest uh, advantages, which is just how it feels like this is a real world you could step into. Yeah, and it's kind of ironic that he would fight against that, considering you know during the actual like um, creation of the the sets and props and things like that, he was constantly stressing that this has to look like a real world, like we're stepping into a real place. And I mean, he was even adamant that like the rivets and the X wings and things like that be shown, and you know. Going with Taylor here, I, I think his vision, you know, whether Lucas admits it or not, kind of works more hand in hand with that. I'm sure he does because you know he, that that's the style he used in all subsequent films. The scenes on Tatooine were shot in Tunisia. It was originally intended to be a jungle planet, but uh, they didn't like the idea of filming in a jungle, so they decided to go with the desert, which feels so much easier. We'll uh, get to the jungle later, anyways. Yeah. They quickly ran into problems with the equipment and just the sand and whatnot, and he just messed with all their electronics. So there's a lot, of, you know, obviously a lot of special effects and practical uh, components that just kept breaking down. Uh, they fell behind schedule within the first week uh, of filming, and that that basically stayed was par for the course for the rest of the shoot. Uh, Luke's underground home is an actual hotel in Tunisia, which. I'm sure now it's probably like a shrine where people, like, where fans go on pilgrimages to or something, but that's just pretty cool. It's they found a, a, Yeah, they found a place like that. Reshoots for Tatooine were shot in uh, Death Valley, California. The rebel base on Yavin 4 uh, were Mayan temples in Guatemala. Um, the studio filming was done at Elstree Studios in England, where Indiana Jones would later be filmed. Uh, there were still a lot of difficulties and tensions on set once they, once they got back to the studios. The uh, British crimp film crews um the british film crews were very difficult to work with and they they, they didn't take the project all that seriously so there seems to be like a, a lot of just strife between them and lucas trying to get get uh, you know his vision on the screen i mean granted the cast as well didn't seem to have all that much confidence in the project from uh some of the interviews i've seen Another issue they ran into during filming with the cast was that Lucas is very, or at least was, very uncommunicative. Uh, they said that he gave basically no direction. Like the most he would ever say is like, "Oh, do it faster, do it more intense." Um, and reportedly, it was Alec Guinness who, who uh, did a lot to try and inspire the younger actors to keep their some like some amount of uh, professionalism on set. And basically, everything I hear from the other cast about him is that he's just a really awesome guy. Yeah, there have been multiple interviews where Mark Hamill just talks him up as if, you know, he's the greatest guy to be around. <laughs> One of the stories he told us, he kept accidentally referring to him as Sir Alec, and he said he would tap him on the shoulders a couple times and then give him almost a firm slap on the cheek and be like, I told you, call me Alec. 
he just really it seems as if he didn't want there to be any sort of disparity between he and these other actors they were all kind of together filming the same movie so it should you know like that should be the tone of their relationship yeah and whether or not he believed in this weird little movie he brought you know every ounce of skill and gravitas he had the film was originally budgeted for eight million but uh, due to the difficulties on locations and the studio and all the delays with the uh, special effects from ILM, they were running out of money and it looked like the film might not even be finished. Um, towards the end, they had to split the uh, crew into three units to get filming done on time. So I'm assuming they were just running around the clock. The film ran into even bigger problems during the editing, uh, mainly because it was just plain bad. Uh, it was slow, boring and confusing. Um, in February of uh, 1977, Lucas showed an early cut to uh, fellow filmmakers, including Spielberg, uh, Brian De Palma, and John Milius, and I think I heard that uh, Francis Ford Coppola was there, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, and of all of them, Spielberg was the only one who liked it. Uh, and he's, I think he almost wears that as a, a badge of honor now. He's like, I saw it. I, I saw that there was greatness in there. Uh, he brings that up in different interviews. Yeah, so the, the film was a mess, and they... They had to make a lot of changes in editing. They had to get rid of the original editor and bring in Paul Hirsch and Richard Chu. And they basically restructured the entire first act. Um, among changes were made, that were made, uh, they removed three separate scenes with Luke prior to what became his uh, introduction with the purchasing of the droids. There were several scenes kind of just spliced in between the space battle and interrogations that, that had him in them. Uh, the intercuts between the Death Star and Tatooine over the first half of the film were like completely rearranged, and just to give the film a better sense of um, of flow and kind of make the information more thematically relevant as it was revealed. Another huge change was adding the threat of the Death Star counting down to destroy Yavin Four over the climax. In the original, the original cut, it was just all it was was the rebels were attacking the Death Star. There was no threat of the, the rebellion being completely wiped out. All of that was uh, added in by um, Lucas's wife, uh, who's, an, who's also an editor, Marcia, which she did. She created that entire concept and basically through inserts to computer screens and loud, like loudspeaker um, announcements. She created all of that out of thin air. There's no, there's like no additional photography. It's all, it's all just through the little special effects shots and whatnot that they created the, the concept of, the Death Star is coming around Yavin Four to just I mean, coming around the moon to destroy Yavin Four, which that that's what gives the entire climax so much tension and energy. It's 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 just a wonderful feat of editing. And if you want to know more about this, uh, watch uh, how a New Hope was saved in the edit on YouTube. It gives a, a full breakdown of all the different changes in editing that were done to make it turn it from this like boring, incomprehensible mess to you know, this incredibly tight film. It's, it's really fascinating. Yeah, it is. It's kind of amazing what can be accomplished after filming is even done. Like, it kind of blows my mind that, you know, because I didn't even know about this until just recently. And like you said, that that countdown is is why that, that scene is so tense, you know? I mean, I can't think of that scene being even half as strong as, as it is now without, you know, the music you know, building up and constantly cutting to, you know, T minus whatever, like, you know, the last second victory. It's Death Star will be in range. Yeah, yeah it's man. And and you don't notice it at all. It feels so organic. It's it's just amazing. 
Due to the film running way over budget, another scene that had to be cut was a Han Solo's confrontation with Jabba the Hutt. They simply didn't have the funds to uh, finish the special effects for the character of Jabba. Uh, so the scene had to be cut. Of course, this is later uh, reinserted in the later releases, which we will discuss. At Spielberg's recommendation, uh, John Williams was hired to do the score. He had just worked with Spielberg to uh, score Jaws. Originally, Lucas wanted to use classical music just laid over the film, but Lucas convinced him to uh, use an original score, which you could say was a pretty good call. Again, man, just the movie that could have been. It's it's crazy to it's think. terrifying. <laughs> everything that... So many just variables working together to turn a mess into a masterpiece. And uh, finally, uh, Ben Burt uh, was the one they went to for the just absolutely incredible sound design, which I could go on and on about all the crazy stories they have about the different things he used for sounds. Uh, but we will just we will resist that urge. Um, so finally, the film was released in on May 15th of 1977. So, James, I know neither of us uh, were even close to being alive then. So when was your first viewing of this film, and uh, what has your relationship with it been like over the years? So I had a weird relationship with this as a kid at first. Um, I had only caught, like, brief glimpses of it. I knew my older siblings loved it. But for a while, my memory and knowledge of it was, it's just that movie with that really hairy guy. Like, that's (laughs) all I knew. Um, And, like... As it turns out, you know, a lot of other people, I kind of grew up with the prequels more, um, which I think has helped me give myself, like, it, it's helped me love this, the prequels in a way that a lot of people don't. Um, but I think I was, I, I want to say about 12, whenever we, my family um, went on a vacation with my aunt and uncle's family as well uh, to Gulf Shores, Alabama, and we were there for a full week. And so every night we would watch a different Star Wars uh, going in chronological order. And I think that's when I actually sat down and watched the trilogy, you know, from start to finish. And honestly, I I remember enjoying it, but I remember just, again, like at that age, enjoying the prequels more. Just because, you know, I was this dumb kid. Uh, (laughs) But later on... um, just a couple years later, I would rewatch the trilogy and it was just like something clicked and fell in love with it. And now uh, it's something I rewatch fairly often now. So, you know, I, I don't have this relationship where I was attached ever since I was a kid. But, you know, in my early teens is whenever I finally came around to it. And when I did, like I said, it was just this this full realization of everything awesome that I was seeing. Yeah, um, for me, I don't ever remember a time when Star Wars wasn't in my consciousness as one of my favorite films, or at least even more than just that. It's just, it's Star Wars. It's not allowed to not be your favorite film. (laughs) So it's always been around. I don't, all the original, well, at least the first two, that was a whole other story about Return of the Jedi, uh, but... Empire and A New Hope kind of just blurred together for me with most of my memory. Um, you know, as well, I, I preferred the prequels as an idiot child. But I think where I really came to notice this film was was as I was you know coming you know becoming a film buff and learning about movies. I, I do remember multiple times you know just sitting down and watching this film through and just being 
absolutely astounded at how perfectly put together it is and how you know how it's pacing how beautiful its pacing is and the editing and the storytelling and so over the last few years it has it this one in particular has meant a lot to me and has been basically from the time I cared to rank these films, it's been my favorite. And, and you know, we this is obviously after change has happened a couple of times in the series we've covered. It is still currently my favorite film in the series. Um, one thing I think we should, probably should cover before we actually move into the review proper is which version did you watch uh, for this? Controversially, I watched the 2011 version. Um, and controversially, I am going to defend that version. Um but yeah, that that's the one that I saw. The same here. I watched the 2011 Blu-ray release, um, because the other question is, does it matter? <laughs> and you will find a a lot of varying opinions in this. Um, yeah, I think both of us, having never seen the original cut, you know, all due all due respect to those who fell in love with the theaters, I I, I have a you know difficult time even comprehending the fuss. Um, you know, not trying to be. Uh, arrogant but just for me at least the changes are almost universally for the better you know t- aside from you know stupid things like changing uh you know having grito shoot first or some of the dumb cgi animals i think in general the changes like i i, I watched through a video of all the changes that were made and most and i see about 90 percent of them are completely invisible if you don't know they're there and even if you do know that they're there, they're very hard to spot. It's just little things like putting a rock in front of R2-D2 as he's trying to hide. Or a lot of our, the like map paintings were replaced with CGI backgrounds. Or, or some of the space fights were cleaned up or replaced digitally. It's just little things that, for me, uh, you know, they, 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 they improve the entire experience. So many shots that stuck out to me as a kid and... and, and have been stuck in my mind as some of the things that define Star Wars, like the shot of the X-Wing fighters coming around Yavin 4, or the uh, the Jawa sandcrawler coming up over the dunes. Those are the changes he's made. Or the uh, the, what the, the the Lobacks, right? That's what they're called? The, uh, Dubacks. Dubacks, the, uh, the sand lizards. Just images that have been, for me, part of Star Wars as long, for as long as I can remember, are things that he inserted later. So yeah, I, I definitely understand how someone who w- would want to see the original, the uh, version they first saw, and, and I definitely, I, I don't agree with Lucas not making it available. But I think part of what has made this series so eternal is the fact that he was willing to go and clean it up and, you know, do the color correction again and do these little things that that just make it, that that take away things that would be stumbling a box for a new generation to experience it. Like for like for me, for me to watch now, if I was watching the original version, there would be so many wonky special effects or weird things that I would have to, you know, overlook and forgive and, and, you know, just kind of ignore. Whereas the fact that he has continued cleaning it up and subtly for the most part, subtly improving it, I think has made this, this film almost timeless to where now it, it it still feels like an absolutely perfect, flawless film. The special effects, while mostly being enhanced digitally, still look amazing. Um, now, for someone watching it, where they wouldn't have for a new audience later on. So, 
I mean, I, I definitely think they should. The original should be available. For, for me, I I would never want to watch it. The version I know and love, and that I think is demonstrably better, is are the special editions. You know, outside obviously outside of a few of the changes that he, he thankfully like Rita shot first, where he went back and fixed it. Outside of those, I think almost every change is for the better. So yeah, for me, I I am completely on the side of uh, special editions yeah i mean i agree with pretty much everything you said it i i think that anyone if they're going to be completely honest with themselves and they watch that video on youtube comparing the the changes with the original if they look at that with a critical objective eye there's no way you say the original is better yes we have to like I mean, like you said, we have to overlook stuff with the original. We do have to overlook stuff with the special editions that, see, I forget the animal's name, but as it, like, covers the entire screen while they're <laughs> parked, terrible. And those stupid droids with, like, the syringe thing and the mouse, like, the, the mice, it, it's, there's horrible CGI sometimes, but it's almost all kept in Moss Eisley, like, those opening shots going through there. And so to me, it's just ridiculous to point to this very minor moment um, and and choose that or, and, and say that you would rather do away with that, even if it means doing away with how much Luke has cleaned up this movie. Like, just look at compare the shot of Luke in his speeder looking for R2 and the original and the new uh, and the extended edition or not the extended edition, the, the special edition. Look at the dive into the trenches with the X-Wing. Um, or the, the entire final battle is, is almost completely redone. It's still the same shots, but they're much nicer. <laughs> yeah. I, and, I mean, honestly, the, the comparison between like just a Falcon um, in the, the hangar of the Death Star, what it looked like before, it was this very fuzzy image, and now it's beautiful and cleaned up. And then, you know, you have what I would consider an iconic image of the Falcon leaving Mos Eisley. That, that's completely CGI, the way it kind of hops up. and That's uh, another uh, one know. of those iconic shots. Yeah, like that's just something that is unequivocally Star Wars in my mind. Um, and so, like I said, I wish the other ones were available, but I would just say, please don't just buy into the Star Wars collective hive mind to where you have to call George Lucas a hack now and someone who's ruined your childhood and things like that. Look at look at them fairly, and I think you'll see that ninety percent of the changes are for the better. And the fact that so much of what makes this film great, like down to its very core, was entirely created in post production. I think that that says a lot for the the theory that a film can be improved. Like there's there's a whole another debate you know, of whether is the film about you know whether directors are even entitled to their own director's cuts or you know is the film we release the film that should be there and or like what is the whole morality of our what are fans entitled to and how much control is the director have? There's, there's a whole debate around that, which I don't think there's any real answer for, but. I do think just you comparing one with the other generally, um, the the special editions do give us a superior project, a product. Um, so <laughs> where do we even start with this movie? I think we're both just kind of avoiding talking about this movie. I think um, so. Let's just go to the crawl. One of the most astonishing things about this movie, I think, is John Williams' score, and. There's something just so brazen and audacious about opening with a fanfare like this and this 
title crawl. It's like the fanfare is so incredibly arrogant. It's like this is Star Wars. This is awesome. You will shut up and you will pay attention because we are cool and you'll love it. Like, that's what the music is saying. Just just so you know, <laughs> and and it, uh, the, the the whole device of the crawl is so brilliant because it gives you. It's an exposition now. This is the thing that writers are like always trying to figure out how to fit into their films. And he just gives it to you in text with this awesome music and no one complains. And it's, No one should complain. Yeah, because it, you know, it sets up this world, it sets up the conflict. And interestingly, the, the original text curl was much longer and uh, Brian De Palma actually helped Lucas whittle it down to what we have now to where you know, it gives us all the essential information where we perfectly understand what this story is and where it's going. And then we're off. But back to the music is there is an entire musical language it feels like that Williams developed to where basically any any song you listen to anyone on the street could say that's Star Wars they may not be able to name where it's from but but there's an entire sound with, with the that that is Star Wars and then you know that's that's used across all eight films now but I, I it's it's there's a quality just the way he uses the brass that sets it in this galaxy far, far away. No matter where, no matter what cue you listen to, you're immediately transported to this other galaxy. It's it's again, you know, there's this film does so many groundbreaking things, and not the least of which is the how perfectly the music encapsulates everything encapsulates everything that this film is. Yeah, I mean. What's crazy is, you know, you you could understand what that means to, you know, us having grown up with these movies, you know, sitting in the theater now, even with The Last Jedi, you know, whenever you hear it, the whole theater, this enormous IMAX theater just erupts into applause. And that makes sense now, but, you know, this movie was released without all of that behind the, you know, behind them. This is just, boom, Star Wars, loud music, clap, and and it works. And what I love is that, you know, just because of the, this adventure serial genre that it's kind of a part of you can get away with just like force feeding almost this general information uh, and what's awesome about the crawl too is that from seeing the you know a long time ago to the title star wars and the crawl by the time it's disappeared the tone for the movie is set you know exactly what kind of movie this is going to be because of the excitement, the energy. I mean, it's it's slapping you in the face saying this is a space opera full of adventure and fun. And it like you can achieve that. I mean, yes, you have text on the screen, but you have no dialogue, you have no spaceship inside. You just have this crawl and instantly what this movie is is directly in front of you. And it doesn't hurt that the camera instantly pans down and gives us one of the coolest shots in cinema history. I was uh I was you know, listening to interviews from people who saw it originally. Uh, and then re-watching it with this in mind, he said, you know, as, as you pan down and you see these planets and this first ship pass by and then the lasers and when the Star Destroyer comes over, he said to the audience at the time, it just felt like the ship went on and on and on, like with no end in sight. And you see that and you completely understand what he's saying. Like, what what a crazy, bold and awesome way to open your movie where you're like, you're almost revealing your hand. Like this is, this is the extent we've gone for this movie. We have these awesome, incredible landscapes, these huge vistas, and this giant spaceship. And like this is the opening shot. You know, there's a, there's a reason this uh, on most every list I would see like this is almost always considered like the the most iconic opening still of any movie. 
And what he does with that is he not, not only does it give us an incredible sense of scale, but Lucas was able to capture a sense of momentum and movement and just weight that I don't know that haven't have accomplished before with a you know, space film. It's like you look at Star Trek and the clips I've, I haven't seen all of 2001, forgive me, but the clips I've seen, the images feel very stale. The spaceships, they, they're sure they're moving, but you don't feel that sense of weight. And there's not, there's no speed and being in space there's no points of reference to show speed, but somehow Lucas was able to convince us of how fast these 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 uh, ships are moving through this incredibly dynamic camera work and use of force perspective that it, it gives a just a, such a sense of you know, you know adrenaline and momentum to the shots. Uh, one th- one thing he did was apply a, a layer of basically atmospheric aerodynamics to the backing of space, like making the X-Wings kind of bank and slowly t- turn and things like that, which you wouldn't have to do in space, but it gives it that sense of weight and tangibility um, over the course of the entire film that that, that just, you know, obviously now all space is shot unless it's, Unless it's like very intentionally trying not to, it's shot in that style, um, and, and you know the the way he he created the entire visual language for how we shoot space travel now. Yeah, and um, you know talking about like the speed, momentum, and the perspective, I think he almost also establishes the dynamic of of the situation. You know, I mean, it's just one rebellion ship and one uh, ship from the Empire, but it's almost it kind of lets you know the situation too. We have this little bitty ship fleeing from this this one that's encompassing the entire screen, um, just without any dialogue. Diving directly into that image, it builds so much intrigue. You know, from the very get go, without even seeing a human figure, uh, we're interested. And and I love that we fall into the scene in the middle of a chase. You know. Uh, we talk, you know, obviously there is this opening exposition dump, but it's awesome. And I think it's earned because there's almost none of that after this. Think about all the terms that are introduced in this in this film, like Jedi, the Force, Lights, or all these things. They're constantly being presented to us, um, at, you know, as if they we already know what it is. Um, and so I, I love that that carries over into just the first shot. Like there were... We're falling into a universe that's already fully established and in the middle of a conflict that's been waged for over a decade. Yeah, and like just the visual storytelling, you know, we have the tiny little colorful ship, the big dull gray ship. <laughs> it's, you know, good guys running from bad guys. Or like when we get down to the planet and it's just a while of uh, of the droids wandering around. Like when we're introduced to the Jawas, they have no discernible dialogue, and yet we we know everything they're about just from the way he allows us to you know, to just explore their world visually, and just that, that that sense of or the cantina just immerses us in this world in a way that just allows us to feel like we know everything about it without ever having to tell us. And obviously, a lot of this was in the editing; like there was a lot of exposition dumps in the original cut, but. 
still what they were able to accomplish is just a wonder as far as just visual storytelling in in every frame it's communicating something that that just you know now now they don't have to tell us that yeah and and the moments when they do actually say you know like tell us things it's it always works contextually you know like with obi-wan teaching luke about the force and what a lightsaber is uh but then i love that you know he he names drops things like the clone wars and never elaborates what that is because in that universe on that planet you wouldn't need to you know we don't we wouldn't say oh world war Two, which was a war fight like it just the dialogue feels as if you know we're we're being asked to keep up and to put pieces together in our own minds uh and i just i love that yeah i think that is one of my favorite lines in all of stars you fought my you fought with my father in the clone wars what the heck? Just what does that even mean? There's such a sense of history that comes with that line, and there are so many lines like that. Just like there's a sense of coming into the mid, uh, middle of a story in this film. Like this is a middle chapter. Like we're we're told of this the the Jedi Knights and the Republic that's now been dissolved and. Uh, you know the guardians and how, and how they fell, and the emperor rose up, and Darth Vader betrayed them. All of this is stuff that's just kind of in the past, but sort of kind of influencing the present. Like this is by its very nature a middle chapter. Now, we, do we need the previous chapter? No, I, I, I like that we have it, but you know it's not needed. But there's still such a sense of weight and history behind behind these you know nonchalant references that are thrown out that make this feel so much like a real world. Like, this is one of the things that I love so much about Tolkien and, and Star Wars and the, the, some of the very few creations that have managed to create what feels like a fully self-sufficient reality that could have history going back for millions of years. Like, no matter how far you look, there would always be more stories to tell in these worlds. And I think that that's one of the big parts of the you know, the enduring appeal of Star Wars is the fact that there's, the, there's just so much to learn, and you can never like you can learn forever, and there would always be something more just around the edge. There's the history is just never ending, and that, that's something that's so that was so appealing to me as a child, as you know, a history buff. The fact that I could just go and you know learn the history of all these characters, it's just. It's just heaven for me, at least. And obviously for a lot of people as well, judging by all the ridiculous encyclopedias and stuff that tell the story of that weird guy in the bar in the cantina. Yeah, I mean, you have, over the course of the movie, pretty much a, a history of the galaxy slowly being fed to us in very natural ways, like Tarkin entering the room and he's saying, uh, we will no longer have to worry about the Senate. The Emperor has informed me that the last of the Republic has been swept away. Like, so much can be gathered from that you know like in one nonchalant line we're informed of you know a republic that used to exist that was fighting for its last breath and has finally been completely disassembled uh by this emperor who we know almost nothing about by the end of this movie but it feels like everyone else does and i love the fact that it feels like everyone else does um like i said it's just it builds intrigue without being annoying yeah and th- it's still something that's incredibly hard to do. Like the uh, the movie Warcraft, which I-, I enjoy a lot, kind of does this all wrong where it just loads us with all this exposition and history right up front. And it just makes the films kind of an incomprehensible mess, even though I do like it. It's just there's 
there's something to be said for this kind of economy of storytelling that obviously the, the success of Star Wars speaks for itself. Yeah, and I think you can't really talk about world building in A New Hope without just talking about the pacing of the movie too, just because those go hand in hand. And the way information is paced out is just so perfect. Because, um, you know, apart from the crawl, it's it's a line here, and then we move over to a new location. And there we can go a long time without any dialogue, like with the droids on Tatooine. But we get all the information we need to go, like we need there. We don't linger there too long. Um, we'll, then we go back, and we hear Leia and Tarkin talking about things that they know all about, but that we're trying to continue to pick up on. And then before that kind of devolves into them just giving a history lesson, we go back and we're introduced to Luke and instantly the entire family dynamic is set up. It. Uh, I'll talk a bit more about this when we talk about the actual direction, but um, something that I love is that uh, it looks, you know, foreign and crazy at first, but by the end of it, it all, there's all, he almost directs the scenes with Luke um, at his farm with a sense of familiarity, like like moisture evaporators, these weird holes in the ground is home. Like all of this seems so odd at first, but you know, after a few minutes there, it feels like it just makes sense. Uh, And then, you know, when we get to the call to action, we start seeing all of this, like we're experiencing the world open up with the protagonist. You know, we get to experience this sense of awe with him and you can just break down sequences almost like you know Tatooine the Death Star the Battle of Yavin like you can break things down and we never spend what like too long or too short amount of time at any of these locations yeah um let's just move into a discussion of the characters um and I think this is kind of where Lucas's archetypes you know the, the the way he was trying to harken back to archetypes and I, I'm not terrible I'm not really all that familiar with you know Joseph Campbell's work up the, the hero with a thousand faces outside of the you know, the general conversation around Star Wars so I don't know that I can comment too much on precisely how this this story you know mirrors the archetypes but and, and it's very difficult because all pop culture after this has now looked back to Star Wars to to, to find you know where the where ancient archetypes begin and modern archetypes and it's it's pretty much impossible now without you know going way back and reading all these ancient uh, writings however you, you know you have luke who you know is that you know that classic farm boy he is any one of us he's he's everyone like that that that's you know an element we see in all across western literature is you know the fact that the hero can be anyone. He he's just a kid on his farm, and yet, with just the right um, you know turn of events, he could now you know, he can rise up and you know become the hero who saves the galaxy. You know that, that that's, that's a trope we hear. You know the hero's journey is the trope we see all across film, and he just so perfectly encapsulates that. You know where he his family life is like everyone else. He wants to go hang with his friends, but nope, his uncle has to make makes him go do chores first. He is he he is anyone, and while the Empire Strikes Back, I think changes that to make to go towards more of the one trope, which is just as valid. I have no problems with that. I don't feel that here. Like here, he does genuinely seem to be just anyone. He is just a kid 
who may be kind of skilled in the force, which what is the speaking of which we'll talk about? What, 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 what is the force in this movie? But it just it, he really in this in this film at least before we get to Empire Strikes Back, it just feel like he is just as every man as you can be. And I, I think that that's it's very important for the appeal of this film, just just because now every kid who watches this wants to be Luke. They they all of their games now are you know pre- pretending to be that character who can now the all their imagination is, is wanting to tap into that to you know, maybe just maybe they can be the hero of this story. It's not like for example going back to a hidden fortress. That story does have two peasant characters. But in the end, there's still idiots and there's still peasants. The nobility is still the nobility, and there's there's like there's no there's no possibility of that kind of rise in stature, like that like for for all the easternist influences we have in this film, the core story is very much more of that Western individualism where anyone can change their stars and anyone can be the hero. It's much more kind of I guess Arthurian where you know you have the common farm boy. Who there's also a there's also a sword, you know, who's who is destined to be king. It's it's kind of it's much more wish fulfillment. Where Asian uh, Asian storytelling seems to be more kind of reinforcing uh, societal structures and whatnot. Now I'm, probably, I mean, I'm I'm not terribly familiar with Asian storytelling. I've only seen a couple things, so I, I might not be entirely representing it fairly. But that from what I've seen, that seems to be more of the case. Yeah, and and like you said, both are absolutely valid, um, and I think you know a lot of the, a lot of the reasons that people tend to focus more on like the importance of bloodline and legacy is because of what the the series added, you know, as it went on. But I do think it's important to look at something in its original context. Uh, by the end of A New Hope, Lucas still didn't know himself that Vader was his father. Uh, that was something that was created as they began working on the sequel. And so I think looking at A New Hope in its context, its its message at first was absolutely supposed to be one of this every man rising to be the hero. Um, and I, I just don't really see any sort of validity in an argument against that. And to talk about like the actual cast uh, in like playing the characters, you know, the the acting in this movie isn't one hundred percent perfect, but I can honestly, without a shadow of a doubt, say it. It affects in no way my enjoyment of this movie. Uh, Mark Hamill to me carries such an, like just this exuberant energy and enthusiasm that's almost infectious. You know, he, it makes him the perfect protagonist for this kind of character that we talked about, for this kind of world and and the journey he's going to go on. Um, you know, in a lot of ways, this is really just a coming of age story for him. And people tend to, you know, talk about how he's annoying in A New Hope and he has to grow on them as a character and things. But honestly, I think every quality that they would describe as annoying kind of makes sense for the character. He's he's any one of us during senior year, you know, ready to fly the coop. <laughs> like, that's that's who he is. And I think that's what's so important to his journey. So trying to, to rob him of, of this kind of beginning lessens, you know, what I think is an incredible character journey he goes through over the course of the trilogy. And so just, I, I love the character. I love the all of his characteristics. I, I think everything that Lucas wanted in the character, Mark Hamill just exemplifies. He's he's likable. He's optimistic almost to a fault. But he's just, it's so easy to root for him, at least for me. Um, 
and to to be completely entertained by his journey. Yeah, it's it's such a just a it's not a great performance, but it is absolutely earnest. And we you can tell Mark Hamill believes everything he's saying. So whether or not he nailed that particular line doesn't matter because he believe he believes it, I believe it. And that makes him pretty invaluable because the the character is not all that deep, you know, especially in this film. It gets better as it goes on. But for this film, the characters are only you know, whatever they need to be within this one scene. There's like there's no fluff on any of them. Um, and I think you, that kind of earnestness co- you know, covers a lot of you know, thinness in the script and whatnot. Yeah. And then to, to talk about the other leads, you know, I, I talked about part of you know, just how, the, why I love Carrie Fisher in the role. Um, you, know, you can have quibbles with her going into a British accent randomly. But <laughs> apart from little things like that, I think she perfectly sells like, this dignified beyond her years quality that Lucas was looking for when he was casting the role. Um, like we said, she feels older than she is. And to me, that's even more evident when it's when she's contrasted with Luke, you know, her equal in age. Just the, the difference in their demeanor. He's older than her. I think quite a, like several years older than her. In real life, yeah. And the story, you know, they're, they're, they're the same age as we find out later. But, um, yeah, I, I just think it's... It's a testament to her ability to be able to command the screen that, you know, is we have this 19-year-old actress sharing the screen with Peter Cushing and Alec Guinness, you know, and even Harrison Ford, and she's standing on her own two feet completely and equal to everyone around her. Um, and, and I think, you know, a lot of the time, the idea of a youthful leader falls really flat. <laughs> we'll probably talk about that in a few episodes, but... Here, she just carries herself in a way that demands respect. You know, and as, as I said before, like this kind of verbal sparring between her and Cushing feels completely two-sided. It's it's not just one person trying to keep up. And she she's just like so feisty and full of life and energy. Like the moment they like she's rescued from prison, and she basically takes over the, the entirety of the rescue attempt and is you know bossy on this obviously much older, more experienced guy. It's just. There's such a sense of you know composure. Like she knows exactly what she's about. She knows what she's doing. She knows why she's here, and that could have been gotten kind of irritating very fast. Like she's not grateful at all that the fact they busted her out of prison. She's like she's yelling at him, but something about it just makes it lovable in a way. Yeah, she just there's such a a great dynamic that's completely established. The the first scene that the the three of them are in together, like. By the end of that, we know exactly the relationship between everybody. Um, and so, yeah, I, I I think that she kind of established this kind of archetypal character that would later be copied and, like, end up being quite annoying. But here, as you said, I just it's not annoying at all. It's kind of, it's endearing. I, I love the character. There's a reason that she is just such a beloved character. Um it's just it's crazy to me to think that she's 19 doing all this yeah people point to like ripley as like one you know one of the archetypal uh uh you know female strong female characters but i think there's really something to be said for what uh carrie fisher did here and just you know the way lucas wrote her and directed her and you know the purpose he gave her within these this story it feels you know so powerful and authoritative yeah and then obviously you know 
finish talking about like the big three. Uh, <laughs> there's not really a lot I could add talking about Harrison Ford's uh, role as Han Solo. That's just not kind of understood by anyone who's ever seen the movie. Like there's an almost unquantifiable level of swagger and charm and grit that he brings to the character. Uh, on paper, it's not like he's a bad character, but he, you know, just looking at the script, there's not a lot to him. But I, th- I think it, it's absolutely Ford who made this character a, just a staple of cinema. Funnily enough, I think he probably has the only character arc in the film. Yeah, it, well, yeah, that that's probably true when you think about it. Um, but you know, like, I just think the things that like define him, you know, when you think Han Solo. I think it's it's just little touches that Ford adds to the character. Like, as he's trying to talk his way out of uh, the situation he's in with Greedo, and he's kind of leaning on the wall, rubbing his fingers against the cracks and things like that. I and then, don't have it with me. <laughs> yeah, it's just like the, his delivery. And then whenever uh, Obi-Wan leaves him on the Death Star, he just kind of leans up against Chewie. He's like, where did you find this old fossil? Like, he's just always so relaxed and in charge um yeah it's i just i you know looking through the list of actors who could have played them there's fantastic actors on that list but it's just there's just something about ford's presence that just completely makes this character and one of my favorite uh han solo moments across the entire saga is that deleted scene with uh uh, Java, and I know this is like very controversial, and a lot of people hate it. And I understand something like the effects aren't the best, but every that, that everything that scene says about him as a character is just amazing. Just the way he just walks up, you know, right here, Java, and just is able to walk in and talk his way out of this entire mess he's created for himself. Steps on his tail, yeah, yeah, and he just demands respect from this person we know is obviously very dangerous. But he's just so smooth and self-assured. You know, my favorite line of me is, Jabba, you're a wonderful human being. Which only makes sense with the fact that they created him as a giant slug. I don't even know if that line made sense. I don't even know if that line was originally a joke. But, it, but whatever. It's such a perfect line that encapsulates, encapsulates everything that Han Solo is. And, the, and ugh, I love that scene so much. Yeah. And I mean, his his comedic timing is like... Just the the humor that we get from Ford in all of his movies just seems so specific to him. Like his deli- he just has a certain way of delivering lines, like the ones we open with. You know, like we're fine, we're all fine here, everyone's fine. You know, how are you? He's just, and then following it up, you know, that was a boring conversation anyway. He's it's never like these, you know, kind of what we would consider like quips where we kind of stop and allow the audience to laugh at it. It's just constantly happening on the move. He's always commentating about the situation and. And he just has hilarious body language, too, you know, as he runs chasing the stormtrooper only to find, you know, an entire room full of them and runs back. Like, there's so much comedy in this movie that I think just works so organically with it. And a lot of it stems from uh, from Han Solo. And one thing he does that a lot of other like tough guys wouldn't do is he's not afraid to make Solo look stupid. And like this is another thing that, that, that makes uh, Indiana Jones so great is you know he he's constantly like making these weird faces or getting himself into trouble like you know when he chases down those guards, but and even to the point where his kind of swaggering facade feels almost silly, but he just makes us love him all the more, 
and make him seem that much cooler when he, he does finally get, figure his way out of whatever situation he's in. It's just, it's, you know, it's this delicate balance that, you know, Ford just personifies. Yeah. And obviously we, we have an entire movie to review, so we can't just go, you know, actor by actor, but there are just a few other people that I did want to mention. And we talked a little bit about Alec Guinness, but I think he deserves a little bit more. Just the, the scene in his hut is one of the best scenes. Like you said, it has one of the best lines. It just, it conveys so much, but just his delivery he looks so world weary in that scene, and the way he says, "You know, he was a he was a great pilot. He was a good friend." Like you sense history behind everything he does. Like he, like he said, regardless of what Alec Guinness thought about the project, he is one hundred percent dedicated to this role. As soon as they start filming, um, and so you know, as he explains what a Jedi is, what the Force is, what, what this lightsaber is, his own history with his father, like, there's just this very real sense of, you know, age and history behind it all. Like, I mean, we ended up getting the story, but like, when it first came out, I'm sure it, it felt like there was an entire story to be told just about this life that he's lived because there's there feels to be so much tragedy and sorrow in his past. Yeah, there's there's just a world of kindness and dignity that he brings into every line. Or when he's just standing there, he's awesome. He is an absolute boon to this film. And he also gives some like amazing lines. Yeah, and obviously the a few more. There's um there's uh, Peter Cushing as Tarkin, who's just this, who's obviously having so much fun shooting the scene. There's this absolutely slimy, detestable yet weirdly lovable bureaucrat. And I, I like just the way he's... Now, we don't know exactly what Vader was or was supposed to be. We know as far as when this film was made, but I love that he's the only guy that could trash talk Vader and Vader just just rolls with it. Yeah. I love that he, he, he plays it almost like it's like borderline over the top like with the way he's rolling his eyes we will end a swift end to the rebellion like it's just he's giving a master class on like subtle scene chewing almost and it just <laughs> elevates every single scene he's in evacuate in a moment of triumph like <laughs> he's he's the perfect actor for this kind of role and you know, we could talk about like the the bad CGI or whatever. I don't even think it was bad that brought him back in Rogue One, and then he he appears again in the Clone Wars. I I love that we we get to see more of this character because he's just so great, and I I'll I'm happy with any extra moments we get to spend. And obviously, it all stems from the initial performance Cushing gave. Uh, and lastly, um, I do think we should probably talk about Darth Vader, um, David Prowse gives just a, a really cool um just physical performance you know like when he walks in after the 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 shootouts happen it just kind of surveys the area and like just lifting people up by the throat and even just when he when he stands behind Tarkin menacingly like like almost this this dog that's ready to be let off his leash at the moment like at a moment's notice uh he's just especially at the time this scary figure, you know, that's kind of looming over every every scene. Even when he's not on, you just know, like, oh, when's that Vader guy gonna show up again? Uh, and I, I think it's a it's a marriage 
uh, like the physical performance, obviously the costume design, which is amazing, just one of the most striking images ever, and James Earl Jones' incredible voice. Um, and he's kind of just a static character in this movie, yet he feels so interesting. Like, just seeing the suit, wondering, like, why would he need this suit? The sound design and the breathing, like, what does this mean? His voice is still deep. He doesn't sound like he's this old, decrepit guy. Like, there's just so much between his voice and the, the sound in his suit. Despite the character being, like, not a lot on the surface, there's so much intrigue surrounding him. Yeah, just the fact that he has to wear this suit with, like, life support and breathing apparatus is, like... There's, you just want to know why every like, what what is what are we looking at, and obviously the the mixture between David Prowse's physical performance and James Earl Jones's voice is absolutely seamless. Like the 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 sense of authority that he carries in his you know in his bearing comes all comes through his voice. It's incredible, and obviously this is also t- taken into into account um, the later films and the, the arc his character goes on. But you know, any list has Vader as either like best or second best villain of all time. And it's so much of that is just, there's so many things like, like layer up to that. Just the look, the, the samurai inspired armor, the all black, the breathing, the voice, the body language, the fact that he chokes people with his hands from 10 feet away. It's, it's all of this stuff comes together to create this, just this character that, that just sticks with you and gets under your skin and, while also being absolutely awesome. And just thinking about seeing it, in its original context, you know, like what other villain was there like that at the time? You know, what, what what's going through the mind in like that eight year old in the audience as he sees this black figure walk out? Like, it's just so striking. It's striking now, but man, at the times, there's really nothing like it before. Yeah. Uh, so moving on to like a, a different topic, I do want to talk about the, the direction. To me, it, it almost feels as if it's, Directed with like this scrappy yet classic style, uh, and despite its scrappy nature, the, the shots themselves feel like really pre-planned compositions. Where, I mean, just the legacy of the movie speaks for itself. Like we talked about the the opening scene, um, the scene, <laughs> the scene with the twin sons. My goodness, uh, so many iconic shots, and so it does feel like. Not low budget, but it, it doesn't feel like this incredibly highly polished thing. But at the same time, it still feels very thought out and predetermined. Yeah, wh- whether or not Lucas knows how to edit, he knows how to compose shots. And like then you know, taking that and adding the editing, adding John Williams' score, which is like pure cinematic magic at every second. Like the like one one crazy thing is like thinking about how the scene with him buying the droids was not meant to be an introduction. And yet simply having Luke Skywalker's theme play as he runs back to talk to Amperu makes that the perfect character introduction. And that's a mixture of, you know, this great shot that Lucas had, whether I'm not convinced Lucas has a clue what he's going to do with these shots as he shoots them, but you give them to a gifted editor and a gifted composer and this, this this magic is created. Yeah. Um, and, and we talked a little bit earlier just about, um, you know, the directing of the, the initial scenes of Tatooine. And, and to me, how it, it almost felt like there was this weird sense of familiarity. Like this is, 
I mean, obviously it looks different, but this is just a breakfast table. This is normal life. Um, and I think that's highlighted by how it kind of shifts when we move to Moss Eisley. Like all of a sudden the, the camera is constantly panning, choosing something exotic to focus in on. Uh, like as they walk into the cantina, the way it's shot just changes to highlight the otherworldliness. And I think it does so because, you know, the camera, we're seeing everything from Luke's POV. And he's, you know, he's unfamiliar with Mos Eisley. He knows of it, and he may have been there once or twice, but he hasn't really, you know, mingled with the locals. And so as we walked in this cantina, all of that sense of familiarity that Lucas somehow built up before is just completely gone. And, you know, we're along the hero. Like, this is the like the call to action and the crossing the threshold as it's called in like the Campbell's language. And it's just, it feels so different and odd. And obviously just that cantina scene alone is one of the most iconic scenes in film history. Yeah. And then or going to the death star and everything feels so cold and the, it's all it's shot from like these really uncomfortable low angles. And it's just it's something so garish and unorganic about how that is shot. Um, yeah, that, that and also the Falcon. Like you talk about how weird and otherworldly the cantina is, but the Falcon also has that kind of very homely feel about it as well. Like cutting, like you know, going from cutting from the Falcon to the Death Star and back and forth. You just you know who's the heroes and you know who's the bad guys. Even if this was a silent film and and there were no subtitles, so it's all the visual language is communicating everything. And I think that's something that you know doesn't really get picked up on enough. But yeah, like. Just where you put the camera says something, you know, that there is a visual language behind film and you can gather so much about the way people choose to think things or uh, to shoot things. And, and I do think a lot of it obviously is just picked up without you even realizing and that went a long way here. Anyone whose spine is as straight as Tarkin's is obviously a bad guy. Exactly. It's just inhuman. As, as far as the action goes, you know, uh, apart from a duel that <laughs> I don't think really holds up well, um... I really like the way the action's shot here. We talked about, you know, talking about the way Taylor wanted to shoot it versus Lucas. Uh, I love what they ended up deciding on. It, it's very simple, but it feels like an intentional simplicity. Like, to me, it feels like an homage to the classic wide shots of serial adventures. You know, the, the first thing that would come to mind is swinging on the rope across the chasm, but you just have these these beautiful wide angles uh, and so keeping the angle wide like that and moving the camera only when completely necessary, like we get to fully take in the action, you know, as, as, a as, as the stormtroopers come through the door and we're just having these, like, we're not moving the camera all over the place. Some of it may just because, you know, limited technology, but we just, we're standing in the hallway watching the blasters fire and it's, we see everything that's happening um, in a way that's very clear and coherent. And I think it works really well for the, the style of movie it is. And, and in spite of there being these you know, wide, stately shots, there's so much energy within the frame. Like he's the, even though the action is not literally taking up the screen, it seems, it feels like it's filling the frame. Just the way he, uh, Lucas moves them in the camera, like whether they're running towards the camera or passing by it, or just the way the, the, camera interacts with the action even though it's not moving all that much there's a lot of still shots it feels the action just feels big and feels fast and there's a, there's a sense of momentum and movement within the frame which i think is one of the one of the influences of kurosawa i was watching the, i watched the hidden fortress uh, uh last night in preparation 
just the way he 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 frames and gives a sense of depth and and stages the action and dialogue it, it, i think that's one of the things that really influenced this film is 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 allowing even a completely still shot to feel you know so energetic and full of life and you know he brought he brought that to this film as well and it, it, it gives it such a sense of energy while maintaining the sense of kind of stately dignity yeah and and talking about just the movie's climax um, obviously, as we talked about, it's been touched up significantly, you know, since its release. But even still, just it's amazing how exciting the Battle of Yavin still is to this day. Uh, Lucas just threw out the laws of physics. Uh, and I applaud that decision. And it also makes me wonder, like, why the crap we're so upset about bombs dropping in space? You know, <laughs> any sort of complaint like that went out the window the second we saw an X-wing bank. But uh, not talking about that. I do think, you know, he just he was able to find a way to make the speed of the X-wings feel so real. Like it feels like we're zipping across uh, this huge space station, and the way they shot that is incredible. They built these huge pieces. Obviously, not this entire huge Death Star, although they did have a really cool model that they use. Uh, but for like these bigger shots of just going across the surface, these huge sections. And they would just put a camera on a line and zip it across. And it feels like we're moving across. You know, never once during this whole sequence do I ever question the uh, the authenticity of the locale. Like, we're at the Death Star. We're on the surface. These are turrets that are moving. It's, you know, it still works. As, a, as an audience of 2018, I'm on the Death Star in that scene. There's no question about it. And what's so cool about, like... The insertion of the animals in Moss Eisley does break the spell a bit, but he was able, somehow able to control himself when he replaced like a good portion of the uh, or mo- most of the flying scenes to where they, they they still feel old. They they don't the style and the way they're shot still feels fully um, organic to this movie. Like I could not tell you which shots were new and which shots were old because they all feel a piece of this film. And I really applaud that he could come back here twenty years later and still perfectly mimic his visual language um with with new technology yeah and i also think something um other than just you know obviously the the countdown that really makes this scene more impactful is it's it's not just a a tedious series of wide shots of x-wings flying and crashing like we're we're always being put into the cockpit of the uh of the the pilots (laughs) i mean they they kind of they come and go so fast in this scene and yet, almost every single one of them has almost like achieved iconic status. You know, like everybody knows who Porkins is, even though he's barely in the movie. <laughs> and so, I, I love that you never feel fatigue in in that scene because we're always we're going in with Gold Leader, and now we're seeing Biggs, and now we're seeing Wedge. Like we just over the course of this small action sequence, we're getting to know these people, and it's it's sad as one crashes, and you know, then we, we, but we understand now someone else has to take his place because there's a Tie Fighter over here, and. You know, as someone start like as a Tie Fighter is is on the tail of someone else because even if it's only for like five seconds, we've spent time in the cockpit with them and we've heard dialogue from him. It just makes the action like that much more human and real to me. Yeah, I think we could we just go on forever about how this film was directed. So I think I want to move on to some of the underlying themes and ideas, and obviously one of the biggest aspects of Star Wars outside of the crazy world building is the force 
and watching this film the latest time, this last time, like trying to divorce it as much as possible from later revelations, I'm not entirely sure what the force is. What, like what, gen, if I was generous, I would you know obviously assume that what the Empire Strikes Back expands the force to be is what he first intended. But like looking at this, what do we know of the force? Like we, I think we see, I think six um, examples of it. Like. You have these are the droids you're looking for, or when Vader chokes the the guy, and then Luke blocks the lasers, and then uh, Obi Wan speaks to him twice after death, and then he makes a sound like there's like maybe seven or eight instances of the Force being used over the entire film, and all of them like the most the the most exciting and and, and like scary use of the Force is just the Force choke, so. I'm really interested to see, like, what if, assuming he didn't know what he developed into in the Empire Strikes Back, like, like what exactly is the Force? Like, we have all these discussions. Like, what is, is this energy field that binds us together and flows through us? And, I was about to say we know all we need to know about it. It, it binds us, it penetrates us. <laughs> no, this isn't even a criticism no, I because I, I believe in franchises, but I think it's just fascinating looking back and see just how little of the Force. We see here just how, it, how evocative it is and and the promise it leaves us with, like, you must come with me to Alderaan if you were to learn the ways of the Force. Like, we don't we are not given in the film what that even means. And, like, even, like, this film is such a perfectly cohesive story in itself and it's so complete. There are so many wonderful, like, promises made in this movie that... You kind of you like people talk about there shouldn't have been sequels, but I think there absolutely had to have been. Like just for the most basic idea of the force, I don't think the idea of the force is complete within this film. And that's that's not a criticism, but just an observation. Like like watching this film, what does the force mean to you, James? Well, it binds us and it penetrates. See, I, I, you know, it is kind of hard to um, to divorce yourself from what you know and. You know, I used to not understand at all, like, the criticisms of midi-chlorins and, like, oh, it's just purists being angry. But, you know, when you do try to put yourself in the shoes of this when it first came out, you know, there is, like, there's so little given to us. And it's just this, like, this mystical energy that we know so little about, but it, it comes with all these different abilities. But it's also not just about these abilities. Like, there, it's almost like this, it seems almost as if, like, this lifestyle, like, Obi-Wan uses it primarily for peace and Darth Vader is using it in these abrasive, you know, choking people with like, there's a different things you can gather about. It. I, I don't think we have a solid answer at all as to what it is, but there is just this sense of like unknown, you know, quality to it. That's I think really intriguing. And, and you do lose a little bit that a, a little bit of that when you're like, Oh, you've got 9,000 midichlorians in you. Good for you. Like um, here, you know, there, it, I think it uses its vagueness to its strength where like, we're like Luke. We're saying, like, I want to learn the ways of the Force. I, I mean, I want to know what the Force is in general. And and I do think, you know, some people say Lucas never thought, you know, he was going to be able to make a sequel. I, I think looking into it, you know, he, he had his outlines. Um, he had his general ideas of where he wanted to go. And I, I think a lot of what we see, like, happening later on is, is stuff that he, I mean, he even said he cut his script down to a third. He's like, I'm going to take the first third of the script that I have because it's too long and just make a movie out of that. And so I think there are elements that we see later on that he definitely intended, but decided to get to later. 
Building off of that, like, I don't get any notion of force sensitivity here. Like, all it is is it seems like anyone could simply um, have a five-minute lecture with uh, with, Obi- with Obi-Wan and then start blocking lasers and, you know, making impossible shots on Death Stars. Like, it feels like this is this power that's just simply sitting there. And what was interesting is that no one believed it. Even like among the like even among the imperial staff, they they were all kind of very skeptical of it. Han Solo didn't believe it. Your ancient religion. One thing I thought I thought about this time is is maybe the emperor is creating this skeptic this like universal skepticism. And now that he's finally defeated the Jedi, he's just through propaganda trying to create this skepticism so that no one could ever learn the Force to challenge him. Obviously, that's completely beyond the pendulum of the story, but it just felt it was so interesting just how widespread this and abrasive the skepticism was, despite the fact that you have Vader walking around and the fact that the, the Emperor turns out to be this crazy Sith Lord, which interestingly, the Sith never even appears in the original trilogy. That is weird. I guess we just moving on into like the, the basic plot. Um, to me, everything that Lucas wanted to accomplish. He he completely did, you know, in his attempt to to find what makes stories work. What are what's like this innate draw, um, and how do I just distill it to a, its most pure form? Uh, I, I think he's able to do that, and he's still like, you know, these are tried and true story tropes, but he makes it all feel so fresh. Uh, and I think it's because you know he and and Joseph Campbell both understood it's it's completely okay, arguably even encouraged to take those kind of tropes and just dress them up in new inventive ways because it's just something that humans naturally respond to and gravitate towards. You know, like, you can find the archetypes that these characters, you know, fall into. Uh, the, the naive, reluctant hero who be, who goes on the hero's journey. Um, the, uh, not, not really the anti-hero, but, you know, like the the skeptical partner who's who grows to to be a part of the cause the the mentor who who introduces you to the larger world there's just there's so many things that are just so familiar that we see all the time but it just feels so exciting and new um and then just the the overall sense of like innocent pure adventure in the movie to me can still be found like in a profound way today watching it like it just it feels like I'm just watching wholesome fun, but not just like this childish kind of one. Just like this, it's just something that I respond to because like something in the wiring of humans, we're just like wired to respond to it. Yeah, the good and evil is so obvious. You know, empire good, rebellion bad. There's, there's no. Yeah, I think you got that reversed. I think you're walking away with the. <laughs> you that's said empire good, good, rebellion. Empire bad. good. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, Empire Bad Rebellion, good. Like, there's no complexity. And I love the fact that the series has later on constantly thrown in complexity. But I do love, the, the as you said, there's just the purity of the ideas presented here. You don't ever have to think watching this movie. You just experience it and love it. And that's not an insult. That's just, that's just what makes, that's why it's the most popular film of all time or, uh, or the most popular series of all time. There's, I appreciate the 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 complexity brought later on, but the the pure escapism of it is also just absolutely incredible. And then, obviously, you know, we we kind of touched on on both of these things, but 
there's just there's there's such a strong presence in this movie that I think uh, they warrant a bit more discussion. And that's just the visual effects and the sound design of this movie, like the the technical qualities that go behind making this world. Uh, like as far as the visual effects go, like the practical effects here are pretty top notch. Uh, I think what Lucas did was he was able to completely create a universe that feels lived in, both in terms of the story of like walking into the middle of this conflict, but those X-Wings look beat up, you know. Uh, Moss Eisley looks like it's been there for centuries. Like, that's just, just a place that is, it's always been, and all those people in the cantina are crazy and foreign to us, but they're probably just regulars to that place. And uh, The Death Star looks like my office. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, you know, I mean, some of the prosthetics haven't aged perfectly. Some of it just kind of looks like a mask uh, that could slip on, but like what I love is just the design and aesthetic of everything is so distinct and unique that it's like, you know, the guy third from the left and the second frame of the cantina, like that's always been my favorite design. Like everybody's <laughs> so, you know, iconic and different from each other. You just have all these wild ideas and it's all these different things that create this, this foreign, but fully believable and lived in universe. And, I'm just, it reminds me of, you know, what Peter Jackson said, creating, like, as he started filming The Fellowship, where it's like, you we have to look at this as if we're like a documentary crew walking into a a fully established world, you know, these are the actual uh, locations of these ancient fought battles, uh, we're just here to recreate it, and that's what it feels like, this is just, it feels so real and, and tangible. Amen. Uh, and then just talking about the sound design, like... I mean, how often is it that just the sounds you create are so iconic to where, like, you're you're a sound designer and people know your name. But, like, what Ben Burt did in these movies, he earned it. Like, I don't think there's a more iconic-sounding movie. And I don't think you can overstate the magic of what he brought here. Just from Vader's breathing, the whir of a lightsaber of it turning on, the, the buzz of a blaster, the the screech of a TIE fighter, Chewbacca's language. I mean, even just the rhythm of a mouse droid is so iconic that you can you can reuse it eight movies later as a joke just because people people know what that is. Uh, and so these, these sounds, you know, the sound of a lightsaber, I would argue, is just as iconic as the look of it, you know. Vader's breathing is just as synonymous to him as his helmet is. And when you watch the behind-the-scenes features and everything that Bert did to bring these sounds to life it's it's mind-blowing to me yeah <laughs> like yeah just he created the sound for lasers um for spaceships just yeah, this is this is what beyond star wars this is what that sounds like yeah, it's and like any single sound design in this film like we talked about this with toy story like every sound design in this film is recognizable outside like outside of that context or and inside that context it just creates this entire just, there are so many layers of what makes this film special. William's score, Luke's direction, the perfectly textured set design, the sound design. There's so many layers, of, and every one of these alone would have made a film stand out and become special. But the fact that we have all of these layered on top of each other is, is what gives us Star Wars, you know? All right, now, we could talk about this movie forever. There's so many 
like every scene could be picked to death because they're all amazing. But I think we should probably start moving for a close. Uh, real quick, uh, what is your star rating for this film? No, five out of five. Like no questions asked. Uh, like you, this this wasn't my favorite before. You know, I my favorite was Attack the Clones because I thought the arena scene was the coolest thing that had ever been put to film. But you know now. Looking at the finished product from start to finish, I have nothing to complain about with this. And yeah, I it's one of the easiest star ratings ever for me. Yeah, same here. Like, even now, my complaints with a film are more charming than anything else. Like, oh, sure, Luke isn't the best actor, but who cares? He's so wonderful. He's so fun to watch. So, yeah, definitely, absolutely five stars. It's a perfect film. And um, I forget where it ranked on our top 10 episode we did like a, year, a couple of years back, but. It's in my top 10 films of all time, and it, it, it's going to stay my favorite Star Wars film forever, probably. Definitely. Yeah. I, I don't think it it was in my top 10, and now I'm almost wishing I could go back in time because, you know, having seen it multiple times since then, like, my love has only, like, grown since we started, you know, podcasting, and uh, my most recent attempt to create a top 10 has included it. So, yeah, I, I just love this movie. So it grossed about $530 million on its initial release and over the course of multiple re-releases has increased its worldwide gross to $775 million, uh, not adjusted for inflation. Adjusted for inflation, it is the second most profitable film of all time after Gone with the Wind. And critically, it's received pretty much universal acclaim and uh, the audience likes it as well and it conquered the world, which... It's pretty much end of story. <laughs> Everyone knows it. Everyone loves it. Uh, along with Jaws, two years earlier, it is credited with origi- it is credited with originating the rise of summer blockbusters, uh, which is a trend that it has been all the rage in Hollywood for you know the decades following it. And I think, especially in this last decade, has basically taken over everything, much to the chagrin of many uh, suck up cinephiles. Uh, so. And aside from a a very small, thankfully small contingent of people who kind of resent what this film has done to to filmmaking uh, and introducing the the concept of the blockbuster, pretty much the whole world likes it. And (laughs) so, yeah, that's its legacy. Everyone loves it. It has influenced every sphere of filmmaking as basically every filmmaker will list Star Wars as a as a uh, influence no matter where you go in the world. Even if people haven't seen it, they know what Star Wars is. The, it created the whole merchandising craze, uh, which is what why Lucas was made so wealthy. Was able to f- privately finance the prequels because he, you know, he he was a pioneer in merchandising and capitalizing on that. Yeah, you know, there's reportedly uh, uh, over thirty two billion dollars in just merchandising sales alone, which is I think like two or three times as much as the movies have made themselves. Um. So, yeah, as far as just influence on Hollywood. Everything post Star Wars is influenced by Star Wars, so yeah, there you go. Yeah, and then just real quick, even just about its reception, you know, it it was nominated for Best Picture along with several other Academy Awards. So yeah, it was it was recognized by like critics as just this this modern marvel almost. Yeah, it won. Uh, Williams won Best Original Score, uh, won Best Visual Effects, Best Sound Editing, Best Sound Mixing. Best Production Design, Best Costume Design, and also a Special Achievement Academy Award for Ben Burt for the sound design. Um, and it was also obviously nominated for Picture, Best Supporting Actor for Alec Guinness, which, yeah, it's nice. And uh, Best Director and Best Screenplay, which 
is funny because the screenplay that was actually shot probably wasn't best, but hey. Beyond you know, the, the public reception, there's almost a dozen films, uh, five animated TV shows, literally hundreds of novels and companion books, dozens of video games. Like there's there's no way I could even begin to, you know, try to quantify what this film is, what it means to pop culture. Just suffice to say, it's everything and it's the biggest legacy of any film ever. Yeah. And we can say that with no exaggeration. Like, that's almost just stating a fact at this point. Yep. And I think that pretty much uh, is enough for this film. All right. So uh, that was our review for A New Hope. Uh, if you enjoyed it and want to follow us, you can like us on Facebook, where there is Franchise Fatigue Podcast. If you want to follow us on Twitter, where there is Franchise Pod. If you want to find our other episodes, we're at FranchiseFatiguePodcast.com. And again, if you could, uh, it would be really helpful if you go and rate and review us on iTunes. Uh, James, where can people follow you? Uh, primarily on uh, Letterboxd. Uh, I'm there as JL Hamry. It's J L H A M R I. Um, <laughs> nothing's really changed since last episode. I haven't really updated any sort of reviews. Uh, I've seen a couple more movies and given some star ratings, though, so uh, I guess you can go there to, to check up and see what I've seen and uh, <laughs> at least a vague idea of what I thought of it based on stars. And I am also on Letterboxd. I am there as Gabriel Green. And uh, you can follow me on Twitter. I am there at Gabe A. Green. Uh, so next week, we will be back with The Empire Strikes Back. And um, if all goes well, we'll be joined by Josh Crabb uh, from the Home One Radio Star Wars podcast, which is a really fun show. Go check it out. So, yeah, it's going to be awesome. So until next week, we will see you in the critically acclaimed sequel. The Force will be with you. Always.